Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This week's podcast is brought to you by MailChimp. 12 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their e-commerce businesses. MailChimp, send better email, sell more stuff. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, media, technology, uh, because in the end, just about everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. With me as we have each week is Tim Nutt, our creative editor. Tim, how was your Halloween? It was lovely. Thank you, David. And you? Uh, uh, it was It was good. It's a little hot here in Alabama. It was chilly up here. Very, very cold. Oh, glad to hear. Uh, Christina Monlos, uh, producer on the podcast and staff writer and author of our cover story this week. Christina, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And first time podcast attendee, Sammy Main, uh, staff writer covering digital media. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Sammy. Thanks, everybody. Good to be here. Sammy, what were you for Halloween? Um, so yesterday, I kind of dressed in a DIY-ish costume where I ironed on letters that said Yale question mark on a t-shirt to be Rory Gilmore when she questions her life choices. So a very topical costume. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it was I, good. I weirdly appreciate that. <laughs> Did you wear that to work? Oh, yes. Nobody got it, but the internet loved it. <laughs> All right. That matters. <laughs> Today on the podcast, uh, we say goodbye to Vine, uh, but we do look at how Twitter's influence continues to fuel social causes like Black Lives Matter, uh, which is uh, centered on our cover story this week. Uh, we'll talk about the week's best ads, as we do each week, and we'll explore the pros and cons of maintaining a cool side job after your business hours. But first, let's talk about the news. Vine is closing down after four years of being bought by Twitter. Uh, For those few of you not familiar with it, Vine was the brief looping uh, video platform. A lot of fun, really fueled some of the funniest videos uh, that uh, I think really kind of defined a lot of social for the last few years probably could be credited with pushing Instagram even harder uh, into the video space, Uh, but in recent uh, months, years, had kind of started to lose some of that cultural potency. Uh, Sammy, uh, you wrote about this for us. What were the major factors behind the decline of Vine? It seemed like it was super hot, and then it just kind of faded. I think it's kind of in the bigger picture of what Twitter's been dealing with and all their questions of, of raising funds or who's going to buy it. So I think Twitter kind of looked at it from the perspective of this is something we can cut, even though it's very popular with teens and uh, a lot of comedy creators were really big on Vine. Um, but uh, as that article that I wrote kind of states, um, Those vines really took off on Twitter. They didn't really take off on Vine. So I don't think it really made sense for them to to keep it going. This is uh, especially bad news for the uh, content creators on Vine who did not cross-pollinate, who did not go on to YouTube, which is famously very friendly with its content creators and very supportive, uh, who did not start to build out a presence on Snapchat and some of these others as stars like Logan Paul did. Uh, It seemed like some of the major concerns that a lot of these content creators had. uh, Mike, uh, MIC.com, had a great uh, piece on kind of the role that influencers and content creators played in trying to save Vine. Uh, Some some could say that maybe they uh, were... 
holding them over a barrel a bit by saying you could either make these changes or lose all of us, but they were losing all of them anyway. Uh, but they basically had a list of demands that included things like uh, filters for abusive comments, better editing tools, putting links in the captions, which is still a point of dispute with sites like Instagram. Uh, in the end, this feels to me uh, like a cautionary tale about not listening to your power users, which is something every social platform really has to balance. Uh, if you only listen to your power users, uh, then I think you tend to get a very skewed uh, product, uh, which Twitter has struggled with. Uh, and, and Twitter specifically has been trying to cater to this more casual crowd. Like they want to get the tens of millions of people not using it. Uh, I think that's uh, really their focus over getting the hundreds of people who are extremely popular users of it. But in this case, uh, kind of not listening to them seemed to really backfire. Do you think this is going to have an impact, Sammy, on on some of these other social platforms and video platforms of how they listen to these folks? Well, I mean, we already know Twitter has a problem with abuse and reporting things, and they're not always listening to their users either. But maybe those are the more niche users and not just the general folk. Um, Taylor Nikolai, who I spoke to for that article, he runs the Funny Vines Twitter account, um, which kind of has like millions of people following it, kind of helped propel some of these early ones um, into the viral sphere. He kind of thinks, and, and I tend to agree, that maybe Twitter will incorporate that six-second loop um, into its current software. Since it was going to go viral on Twitter anyways, maybe it will just kind of encompass that back into its native platform. Um, it just seems like a good squash of creativity, and that's not always fun to see online, but maybe that'll just propel people to use these other platforms to the best of their advantages while remembering to cross-pollinate, like we said, to get on those other platforms or to break out into more traditional media like book deals or what have you, just in case these sorts of things do fall under since social media is kind of wibbly-wobbly sometimes. You know, I think it was also kind of a mixed bag for marketers, Vine was. I mean, you had a few marketers um, that were pretty well-known for their Vines. Uh, I think Lowe's. Yeah, Lowe's was really good. Lowe's did their, uh, it was called Fix in Six, and they did these short videos where they would, uh, it was like a DIY demonstration, and they were done in stop-motion animation, and they were really, really popular, and I think that was the, sort of the, the, the shining moment for, for, for Vine as a marketing platform was that kind of content. But a lot of marketers just didn't know what to do with Vine. I think they thought it was just, you know, they didn't know what to do in six seconds. And, you know, a good example is uh, Movie Studios, which which tried out a few things, like back in 2013, 2014. Uh, Chris Thilk, uh, who writes for us uh, a marketing movie marketing column for us uh, weekly, he, he wrote about, about that this week and how... You know, if if you have a a, a marketers um, like like movie studios, which are video based marketers, I mean, all they're doing is is trying to, you know, is trying to promote their own films, which is a form of video, of course. For them not to be able to to really know what to do with this platform, I think was was kind of telling. I wonder if just six seconds was just too short for for a lot of people, you know, for a lot of marketers to really wrap their heads around. Well, and, and early, early on, too, you know, you couldn't upload video. Uh, you really had to create all these things by hand. And I was at an agency when Vine first came around, and that was an incredibly high bar. Not just the creative concept, but the execution was so incredibly difficult in those early days uh, that the brands who could do it, uh, it was tremendously impressive. Uh, but I, I think they wanted to bring these kind of existing ideas of, oh, we'll do this stop-motion animation. We'll do this. We'll do this. And I remember you had to keep the app open. You couldn't even, like, put your phone to sleep. You know, it's a, it was so difficult to pull those off uh the right way, which is the fun of it, but at the same time, it really broke every model of what marketers were used to doing. Let's talk about this week's cover. Christina wrote it. Uh, it's about DeRay McKesson from Black Lives Matter. Uh, he's not the founder of Black Lives Matter, but really rose to prominence in social media, uh, which is why he was the uh, cover star of our social issue, our annual social issue. Uh, really became kind of the face and the voice on Twitter largely of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, well, Christina, I'll just start off with you. What surprised you about him uh, compared to your, I'm sure you've been following him for quite a while since Ferguson. What surprised you about meeting him personally and, and talking to him? Um, I think that everything that you read about DeRay and everything that you hear about him is is that, you know, it's, it, it's mostly about the movement and you know, as he was saying, the work is serious. Um, so, you know, how he's often portrayed is kind of like this 
very serious guy um, who, you know, talks about this one very serious thing. And we, when we met and, you know, spent time together over the course of um, a couple of interactions, you know, he's, he's really funny. I guess that's probably what surprised me is that, like, even on Twitter, he's not funny. Like, he um, is more just, like, telling... He, he recognizes his role as a curator. He's telling people what's interesting at this point and what they should be aware of. But, um, I don't know. He just, he's, 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 it's, it's funny to, like, have an idea of someone and then have that not be who they are at all. Yeah, his, his also... public image is definitely very stern, very kind of serious. And I, I thought that was interesting in your interview when you even ask him, you know, you, you're very funny, like, <laughs> you know, and, and you asked him, what was his response when you kind of asked him how, you know, how he reflects that or doesn't reflect that aspect of his personality online? Uh, I mean, you know, he was, he was again sort of saying that the work was serious and so he's, he's fine with being portrayed as serious and he's fine with being serious um, in, online. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense because, you know, he's not necessarily a comedian. It's not like he's using Twitter in that way. It's not like any of this was sort of to launch some, I don't know, like stand-up career like this is all about a very specific um a very specific path and and you know trying to get people to not die from police violence and that work is very serious so i think it's i think it's really hard to um if you are working on something like that and if that is the uh, persona that you are putting out into the world you know, it's it's hard to sort of balance those two things in in a way that makes sense. One one of my favorite comments in the story was talking about how he grew from a very small following on Twitter at the time of the Ferguson unrest, uh, and then built that into uh, hundreds of thousands now. Correct? Yeah, um, over five hundred thousand. I think it's even near six hundred thousand now. It's a lot. And you know, he talking about why Twitter and and why he personally got started on there. I thought it was, I thought he had a great quote where he says Twitter was the friend that was always awake. And yeah. and and I think we all appreciate that but maybe don't ever, you know, think about it in that way is that it when you have this idea no matter what hour or what weird time, uh, first thing in the morning, the middle of the night, you can throw it out on Twitter and know that somebody else will be there. Or even if they're not, maybe they'll see it later. But I, I thought that was such a good way to phrase it. It's just it's the place to vent you, those kind of opinions and that, that frustration while you're still in the moment of that emotion. Uh, and, and it's really the perfect place for that. Well, I also think that, like, in terms of what he's talking about, you know, Twitter certainly is the friend that it is always awake, and it is, you know, something where you can process a lot of things. I think, you know, part of the reason why his social platform um, really took off has to do with the fact that he was processing things that were, they're not, like, <laughs> they're not necessarily, you know, my boyfriend is being a jerk or like my, you know, I'm having a bad day because this barista spelled my name wrong, which is uh, stop making those posts on social media. But they, it was it was about something real and something that is a problem in our country. And, you know, being able to experience that um, through this other person and their take on it, I think that's kind of what was really impactful because it's, you know, um, it's using it's using the social platform and this ability to process through, um, through that platform in a way that, you know, it can only like, I, I don't know. I don't think a lot of people had seen that before. It's it felt, I don't know. It, I guess it resonated with a lot of people. So did he – you asked him a lot about brands and about uh, marketers. A lot of marketers these days are certainly trying to make a difference. They're trying to do the right thing, be part of some of these larger conversations uh, around social issues. What advice did he have for brand marketers? That they have to live the message that they are putting out. You know, you can't necessarily say that you are – like um, like Wyden and Kennedy did. You can't make a statement about Black Lives Matter and then not have any black employees. You know, you have to um, 
have to do that. Um, your actions matter. And, um, you know, that um, he, I mean, he was also talking about how, like, what they were doing um, in Ferguson and, and other cities was sort of marketing because it's storytelling. And, you know, there's a lot that activists can learn from marketers, and there's a lot that marketers can learn from activists in terms of, like, you know, the action part of it. Yeah, that part kind of interested me when he when he made the connection in the Q&A that you did, Christina, between activism and marketing and how they're sort of, they are built around this storytelling. And, and Twitter in particular, you know, he had a, a pretty insightful thing to say about Twitter, which is that, you know, it causes, it forces you to be concise. Mm-hmm. And so you end up having having to come up with a formulation of your thoughts that is sort of instantly um, persuasive instead of persuasive over a, a five-minute video or something that, that some other format would be. The only thing that, that I feel like was a disconnect for me was that, um, you know, activism on Twitter feels, you know, very relevant and very immediate. Um, but then when you see brands tweeting, it's almost always just complete garbage. You know, it's almost it's almost always like throwaway, real-time like jokey, silly, you know, I don't think that marketers care to have much of a real conversation on Twitter. I think they're just trying to amuse people. Well, I don't think the mess, I don't think like what he was saying was necessarily just about how marketers should be using Twitter. Um, Because you're right, like, do I really want to see Denny's, you know, move away from whatever it is they're doing with emojis and I don't know. Denny's has got a weird Twitter. Check it out. Um, <laughs> but I think he was. I think. I, I think that there is something to be said for um, living the messages that you are putting out into the world, and you know that's that's where there's this authenticity that I think a lot of brands. Um, can have trouble with where you know you're saying one thing and you're doing another and I think we are in a time right now where people are going to seek that out they're going to find out if you're you know if (laughs) if you're saying you represent something and you really don't on your back end do you know what I'm saying like I think I think that's more impactful for people nowadays well, and it's a higher bar for marketers, too, because clearly their bottom line is to sell stuff. So there's already a conflict at the core of their of their DNA, which is hard to get over. Yeah. I mean, I think you can sell things and still do good. I agree. The uh, One of my favorites was when you talked about his relationship, which is kind of an is certainly an unofficial, but w- with uh, Patagonia, uh, where they've been kind of replacing his vests uh, and backpack every time they get, they get really wrecked during, uh, you know, uh, scuffles with authorities or they confiscated his backpack and, and wouldn't return it. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting that the brand is paying enough attention because I'm sure he's not reaching out to them and saying, hey, can I get another vest? Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't. So it's the same vest. Um, but what they do and I actually was emailing with Patagonia about this, um, but they didn't want to comment for the story. Um, they um, have it's it's a program that anyone um, if they own something from Patagonia um, could have access to, which is just that they re- they will repair their pieces. Like his vest has been repaired many times. Um, the backpack was taken um, in in Baton Rouge, um, and it still wasn't. I don't. They still haven't given it back to him. Um, this is like the one time when Patagonia is beating R- REI lately. It's true. Well, I I also think like, I guess what we're talking about is sort of like living your own message, and we kind of touched on this last week or the week before one of these podcasts um, about how. Um, about Patagonia's like, don't buy this jacket ad. Do you remember that? We yeah, yeah, from that? a couple of years ago. A yeah. Precursor to precursor to opt opt outside. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, in terms of like brands living their message, like Patagonia is living that by offering this program, where they're going to make sure that you don't have to like keep buying a thing, but that they're going to repair it and and keep keep you as a loyal customer, but also like live this message of sort of like you don't need to buy eight things to have 
you know, to have what you want. You can have one thing and repair it, and, you know, that's part of their whole brand identity. Well, definitely uh, check out uh, Christina's profile and Q&A with DeRay McKesson from Black Lives Matter. Uh, they are on adweek.com. And we're going to uh, cover one more quick news event, uh, just because this is a pretty large account win. 72 and Sunny won the uh, very contentious General Mills review. Uh, their incumbent, Saatchi, did not participate, uh, but there was a real frenzy of agencies hoping to win that account. This is a $700 million ad business uh, in the U.S. and uh, North America and really one of the premium accounts, of course, uh, with Cheerios and all these other uh, many, many brands in the General Mills portfolio. Uh, Tim, I, I really feel like 72, this is an agency that was our agency of the year, I want to say maybe five years ago, uh, maybe not even that long, uh, but has been a little quieter since then. What has, uh, to your eye, how has 72 changed over the years? And it, did this surprise you as kind of a, a big comeback uh, win for them? I think it is a big comeback win for them. And General Mills is really uh, one of, you know, it's like a, a major, major heartland brand. And 72 is not really an agency known for its uh, sort of heartland work. This is a Los Angeles agency that's, you know, known for its work for Samsung, its, its work on a lot of video games. Um, it, but it has been sort of making inroads into, into you know, more traditional marketers. It's, it, it took a piece of, uh, of uh, Target advertising a while ago. And, you know, they've been doing some pretty pretty interesting work kind of under the radar. They're, they're definitely not as high profile as they were a year or two ago, but this is a marquee business, enormous business. I mean, it's $700 million uh, uh, collectively, the account. And so we're going to be seeing a whole lot more of, of, of 72 and Sunny's work in the next year or two than we have been. So it's a great opportunity for them. And yeah, I'm really curious to see what they do with it. I wonder if they're gonna have to give up Carl's Jr. or at least like stop doing the naked bikini sort of stuff because if you have General Mills and then you have, you know, their like message of wholesomeness and then uh, the same agency doing Carl's Jr. Obviously most people don't care about the, who the agency is, but. I don't think that would be considered technically a conflict. But. No. But. Well, and 72 has been moving away from that uh, at style of ad for uh, Carl's Jr. It's certainly a point of kind of inner turmoil at the brand. Uh, we, we ran an agency spy piece recently about the grandson of the founder of the chain, uh, really calling for an end to that kind of advertising and pointing out some really vile stuff they're doing overseas uh, that that goes far beyond uh, even kind of the, the you know, boob-centric stuff that uh, 72 would do. But it feels like this campaign has kind of gotten a little more self-referential in the last few years, gotten a little more constrained. You don't have, you know, Paris Hilton uh, kind of ripping her own clothes off on the roof of a car anymore. You may just get Ronda Rousey, you know, fighting a burger or whatever. And it seems to have tamed up a bit. I am curious, though, to see, you know, whether and how 72 and Sunny is going to produce the kind of work that, like, Saatchi was so good at. If you think about... The, the Cheerios commercial uh, from 2013 that, that with the interracial family that caused such a hubbub, that whole campaign, that whole Cheerios campaign was really sort of quietly uh, breakthrough in a lot of ways. And I'm curious to see how, you know, this L.A. shop can sort of take the mantle of this big Minneapolis marketer and really sort of move it. Maybe they'll move it in a different direction. Uh, who knows? Well, congratulations to 72 and to their partner, Red Scout, on winning uh, one of the biggest accounts of the year. And now we are going to move on to my favorite part of the show, where Tim collects the best ads, and we call it Ads Worth Watching. Tim, what are the ads that are actually worth going out of your way to listen to? So the first one I want to talk about this week is uh, if anyone has three and a half hours to sit down and watch an ad, uh, make it this one from Laphroaig, the Scotch whiskey brand. Uh, they've been running a campaign for a couple of years called Opinions Wanted, and it's a pretty hilarious campaign because a lot of people really dislike the taste of Laphroaig. I've never actually personally had Laphroaig, but um, the marketing is brilliant because it uh, for about two years now they've been collecting sort of the most colorfully negative reviews of its own brand, of its own product and putting them in the marketing. And so what they've done this time, they, um, they got Andy Daly, the actor, the comedian, uh, comedian and actor Andy Daly, uh, who, Christina, help me out. What was he in? Review. He had that Review. show on. Review, right. Comedy I know Sunday. him mostly from, uh, he's, he plays the doctor on um, Silicon Valley. 
So anyway, they got Andy to um, read. It's basically this giant binder um, of negative descriptions uh, re- uh, that real people have said about Lefroig. And so he goes one by one and, and, and talks about how, um, quotes people saying how the stuff tastes like a burning hospital, it tastes like a brine-soaked Band-Aid, it tastes like primordial ooze, dirty sweat socks, dumpster fires. He goes on and on. And for each one, uh, Andy kind of riffs on it. So he's sort of, he's essentially improv his, you know, his own reaction to these insane descriptions of the product. And it's just, I thought it was fantastic. Christina and I were sort of slacking about this earlier in the week um, or last week about how awesome it was. Um, It's just so wonderfully negative, um, but somehow hilariously funny at the same time. Let's uh, let's listen to some of these uh, delightful interpretations of my favorite scotch. Dewy drops fallen from grisly mouths fighting over a dirty, peaty placenta from a just-birthed Sasquatch. Lefroig. <laughs> That's one I don't recommend that they put on the bottle. So it's your favorite scotch. So does it taste like any of the things I described? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've always said it's kind of like a like a... A burning galleon, you know, it's got this very kind of salty, smoky, briny uh, combination. Uh, I, I don't. I a lot of people call it medicinal, which I don't personally agree. Uh, but uh, I like medicinal uh, kind of uh, cocktails as well. Uh, just to fact check you, Tim, I do think that like a few years ago, I forced you to drink some Lafroy at Campbell's apartment. Uh, rest in peace. <laughs> right <laughs> when it was still. I rad. remember that first time we ever went. Um, but uh, yeah, no, Lefroig, uh, it's really funny because back then they, they had no marketing to speak of. It was definitely a very much a niche uh, for people uh, who like the peaty scotches. Uh, Lefroig is certainly one of the best, uh, and it's certainly one of the most accessible in terms of price, not necessarily in terms of flavor. Uh, and for those who have not tried it, I recommend definitely get the 10-year, which is kind of your base model, uh, because if you go for the, the older, the more aged, the smoother ones, it just lacks that real kick in the face uh, that looks Freud is so famous for. So it's one of the few times I would say cheaper is better uh, when it comes to that booze. All right. Hot take. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention about this this spot, or I don't even know if you could call it a spot, this film, it's kind of part of this whole trend towards like ultra ridiculously, absurdly long content. So they've done, I mean, um, Nick Offerman for competing uh, whiskey did like a 45 minute video where he just sat there and there was like a log burning next to him for the holidays so that's the i'm a little torn about something like this because you know this is a three and a half hour video and you know that only a very small number of people are actually going to watch past minute 10 or 15 i think i watched like the first 25 or 30 uh so i love it i love the idea and and it's it's honestly the way i don't even know how andy daly did this for three and a half hours because it was it was just incredible um, and you sort of want to watch people, you want people to watch the whole thing, but you know, they're not going to. So it's got this weird mix of, you know, it's completely awesome. And yet it's totally self-defeating at the same time. Sammy, it feels like you've done some improv. You do uh, a bit of improv. It feels like this is kind of an example of how improv is really, uh, cre- opening up a lot of doors for talent these days. I mean, you're seeing more opportunities like this where it's less of a 30 second spot and more of a, we need you to riff on this for hours at a time. Yeah, and that's sort of the terrifying thing about when you do comedy is that every once in a while you'll get somebody who's like, okay, be funny, <laughs> like right now immediately. Um, obviously, Andy Daly is a professional and is hilarious, and maybe they didn't even know it would take three and a half hours to record him riffing on these things. Maybe that's just kind of the the nature of his improvisation. Um, but it's super fun when, when brands kind of let people who are known for being a certain way, whether that's funny in this case, um, just kind of let them do their thing and see what happens from that. I think that's so, I don't know, I'm a nerd about comedy. So I think it's exciting and really freeing when people get to do what they're, what they're good at. It's really cool. You know, this spot was also, it was done in one, and it was filmed in one take, so there's no editing here. So when Andy flubs, flubs or doesn't have a funny rejoinder to something, he just they just keep rolling. So it ends up being very, very, we talk about authenticity. It felt really real. And when he does have a hilarious, you know, he keeps track of certain insults. Like there's like certain insults come up more than once. So he tries to keep track of the math on how many, how many times certain 
you know, certain insults are levied against the brand. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was great. And speaking of improv, you know, there is a whole agency out there called Funworks that uses improv comedians to brainstorm campaigns for people. So we wrote about them um, back in February, actually. Lauren Lauren did a portrait on them. So who is this agency that, that behind this one? They're called Multiply? Yeah, they're called Multiply. I don't really know much about them. Um, Highline Studios was the production company. The director was uh, Damon Hoydish. And I don't know any of these any of these folks, so uh, I was pretty impressed. Though, as as sort of stunt films go, this is definitely a stunt. Uh, I thought it was it was followed through with really amazing execution. Great. Well, what else you got for us this week? So the other the second ad I wanted to talk about uh, was the new secret ad out of Widening Kennedy Portland. Uh, so this is the deodorant brand, obviously P and G owned. Uh, they've been running a campaign called Stress Test for a couple months, and it's based on this sort of interesting insight, which is that sweat caused by emotional or psychological stress is a sort of a different thing completely than than um, sweat caused by physical stress. So they've been going with that, and that's sort of really opened up the storytelling for them on this campaign, because, you know, you can talk about um, situations that are emotionally challenging versus, you know, the old, the old secret commercials was just like... Um, you know, raise your hand, like the whole raise your hand if you're sure thing. It's just very, it was very simplistic. And this is um, way more rich storytelling. And so they had a spot, I think the first spot in the campaign came out a couple months ago. And it was, uh, had a woman in a, a young woman in a restroom at work giving herself a pep talk to, to try to get up the courage to ask her boss for a raise. And the on-screen uh, text at the end said that um, she's doing her part to close the gender gap. So a lot of these spots, the, there's a real progressive um, even political uh, bent to the messaging here. Uh, there was another spot a, a month or two ago with a woman who was nervous because she was about to propose to her boyfriend. So that was also kind of a, a gender reversal story. And so this new spot, which just came out uh, late last week, um, also set in a woman's restroom. And it shows a, a transgender woman who's in a stall and she's trying to get up the courage to walk out and sort of let herself be seen by the other women in the restroom. So, you know, and it, it's a really lovely spot. Angela Natividad wrote it up for us. And, I, you know, she, she spoke about it a lot more eloquently than I can uh, here. But the whole, you know, the whole campaign just feels really modern and, and relevant. And the storytelling's, you know, it's really quiet, but at the same time, it's really powerful. And they're just really, you know, they're really beautifully made, these ads. And, and you know, for a, for a conglomerate like P&G to be making this kind of marketing. I mean, the topics are, are pretty remarkable ones for them to be dealing with and for them to deal with them so well is, you know, it's great. So uh, we've got uh, time for one more. And I, I, I definitely want to hear about the, uh, the the living off the brand. So tell me about the living off the brand stunt. So there's this agency up in Portland, uh, Oregon called Roundhouse. And what they did, they, they had this amusing stunt where they a few months ago, and we wrote about it at the time, um, they did this stunt called Living Off the Brands. So they sent one of their copywriters into the into the woods outside Portland. Uh, and all he was allowed to take with him were products that um, the agency's clients make. And he was in the woods for five days, and they sort of picked him up all kind of haggard at the end of it. And they had a camera crew with him, evidently, which I'm not sure. It doesn't really – that means he wasn't really alone in the woods, but we'll ignore that. Um, they, they just put out a – 15 minute or so documentary about this guy's experience out there and crucially they didn't have a water account so he didn't have any water he wasn't he didn't go out there with any water so he had to sort of improvise and and cook lake water and all this stuff and he um angela did a q a with him and he he sort of had a, a amusing take on what was helpful and what wasn't obviously he was trying to say that all of his all the brands were helpful but Really, his Adidas cap didn't really do that much for him um, compared to some of the other stuff. Uh, most amusingly, he, he brought a, an IPA. They have a couple of alcohol accounts. They have a wine account and a beer account. And he used the wine to cook um, some nettles to eat, apparently, <laughs> which I don't know how that tasted. Uh, but they also, he traded an IPA. Um, he met a fisherman along the way, and he gave him some IPA in, in exchange for, for some bottled water, I believe. So I just thought it was funny. The whole the, it's it's kind of a, a well done little film, and and it really takes the idea of living your clients' products to to like the next level. I mean, everybody going back to does Britney Britney drink Pepsi or Coke? Going back, 
you know, decades, it's always been if you're endorsing something or if you have something, if you have a client uh, as an agency, you have to be loyal to that client. And this, this sort of took it to an amusing extreme, like, can you survive on your, on your client's products? The Chris McCandless version of, like... Oh, know. ouch. Was that the Into the Wild guy? Yeah, that's the Into the Wild guy. Uh, he didn't have enough brands with him. Yeah, the, <laughs> just just that, that rice brand. Uh, all right, well, now that it's gotten dark, let's move on to our... <laughs> Our, our weekly big big discussion. This week we're talking about a new feature that uh, we're going to be launching this week. I think we actually just launched it. Uh, it's called Creative Side Jobs. This is a series of little mini profiles of people who have generally creative jobs, day jobs. Uh, th- this is not someone necessarily trudging through a mindless job and then going home and doing something cool. These are people who have generally considered cool jobs, but then go home and do something even weirder or random or something that just kind of fuels their passion. And uh, we kicked it off right uh, with a piece by Tim on one of the most famous people in advertising uh, and a project he's got going. Tim, I'll let you tell us all about it. Who was it and what is his product? Sure. So it's Jeff Goodby, who, of course, is the co-founder of Goodby Silverstein and Partners out in San Francisco. Jeff's been a legend in the business for a long time. So I I spoke to Jeff last week uh, about his creative side job, uh, which is he is a partner in in a tequila brand. So a year or two ago, he and Andy Berlin, uh, Andy was also a co-founder of Goodby Silverstein back when it was called Goodby Berlin and Silverstein when it was launched in 1983. Andy was a partner for a while before breaking off. Uh, he went on to do, he went on to co-found Berlin Cameron, which was its own sort of um, pretty successful agency for a time. Uh, so Jeff uh, and, and Andy were all sort of interested in starting a liquor brand. And originally they, they thought about um, creating a rum brand. But then uh, Jeff ended up being introduced to a guy named uh, Herman Gonzalez down in Mexico, who is a master tequila distiller. And Herman had, was already pretty famous, I think, in the liquor industry. Uh, and he had created this new what's called Extra Añejo um, tequila, which is a an aged tequila. Apparently, um, when you create tequila, you, you don't have to age it at all. Uh, you can just drink it right away, or you can age it for a few years, or you can age it for a long time. Uh, and that creates sort of different flavors. So this is a, a tequila called Tears of Verona uh, that Jeff and Herman and Andy and a few other partners created. And so, yeah, Jeff told me a little story about how um, how they named it, how they designed the bottle for it, how they go about advertising it. Um, of course, Jeff and Andy among the partners are the ones most involved in, in the marketing um, and, and advertising of the thing. But it's not just that. And part of what was so interesting for Jeff was that it wasn't just an advertising assignment. It was sort of a chance to be an entrepreneur again. I mean, he created his own agency, so he was already an entrepreneur. But just creating a, a product from scratch had all sorts of uh, interesting challenges from you know, distribution model to um, how do you import it, uh, all sorts of cool things that he got to learn about it. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I spoke to him last week. We just posted the story today, and uh, he's definitely probably, I think he's going to end up being the most high-profile guy that we uh, focus on in this series. But, yeah, the whole the whole idea of having something outside of advertising is, is a pretty interesting topic. Yeah, so this was something, uh, to clarify, you know, not a brand being launched by his agency in the way that Crispin Porter and a bunch of other agencies had done. This is a true side project on his part. Uh, and and one of my favorite parts of your story was uh, when you talked about, I mean, it's named after a a ghost story of a, you know, a woman uh, who walks the earth after death uh, because I believe she, she killed her children over a jealous spat. Am I right? Yeah, it's a, it's a, a fairly old uh, Latin American uh, ghost story uh, called La Laronia. And it's a myth of this woman who supposedly uh, killed her children um, because of some because her husband left her for somebody else, and then when she got to heaven, uh, she was denied entry and and has to wander the earth, sort of crying and looking for her children, which is a horrifying story, but um, made for a nice sort of interesting name, the tears tears of Euronia. But then when they went to design the bottle and they were looking at all these gorgeous. Uh, really kind of artisanal looking bottles. Uh, they ended up being inspired by something much more um, 
uh, kind of down to earth. Uh, what, what, tell us about that. Yeah, so you know, Jeff brought in a designer uh, to, to try to help him come up with a, a bottle, uh, an interesting bottle, and they, they they did all these crazy designs, and then you know they they looked amazing, but somehow they didn't look very handcrafted for some reason. And so Jeff ended up going to uh, a Napa wine festival and saw this wine bottle there that he was really inspired by that had just. Uh, handwriting on it. Someone, it looked like someone had taken a, a silver magic marker and just kind of written on it. And so they sort of imitated that style. And instead of having uh, a really ornate bottle, it's actually a really, really simple, uh, almost like an off-the-shelf bottle. And so Andy Berlin actually um, did the handwriting. Uh, Jeff wrote a little story uh, in Spanish and in, and in English uh, about tequila. And, and then and Andy actually wrote it out in his handwriting. So that's what appears on the front and back of the bottle. Um, on our story, we've got a nice big product shot that'll show you what it looks like. Um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was a cool thing. And then he also t- talked about how they advertise the stuff. They don't do a lot of paid, paid media at all. They do, uh, a lot of social, it's a very, very niche product. It's, it goes for like $225 a bottle. So this is not something that, um, you're going to be able to get down at Costco, uh, this weekend. Um, but they, you know, they have tequila aficionados are like super into it and, uh, they, they engage with them primarily through social media. One of my favorite points that he makes, and we'll kind of use this as a transition to the bigger topic here is Jeff says, you know, it makes you understand what it feels like to be on the other side of the desk, to be a client. Uh, And he, he goes on to say, and that's good because as advertising people, we can get pretty bratty about stuff and forget that other people have a lot of skin in the game too. And I thought that was a really good point that I, I personally feel like one of the most important things about starting your own business when you work in the marketing industry is recognizing the unique pressures of being the one who's really living or dying by how it sells and how it does and how it grows versus agencies. You know, Agency relationships often last less than five years. And so it's a very temporary and fleeting thing. And I think it's easy to not feel that sense of ownership and responsibility sometimes. Uh, yeah, so feeling like the client was his one one point, and then the other point that he made was that you know when you're working in advertising, um, you know when when you're making ads all the time, your instinct is to want to see how other people are making ads. So a lot of a lot of what you end up looking at for inspiration is other advertising, and, and I think and Jeff really feels like that is so limiting. And so when you're creating something that's not advertising, when you're creating a business or or another product, and you're getting into creativity that way, um, you're probably going to be more likely to look outside. You're not going to go look at TV commercials or print ads for inspiration on how to, how to start a tequila brand. You're going to go look at bottles and you're going to go look at, you know, other things like maybe art and design in a larger sense beyond the world, the world of marketing. You know, in Jeff, in Jeff's case, it was bottle design, which is obviously marketing related, but more on the packaging side, which was, I think, kind of a new thing for him. So yeah, it was really about looking, you know, being inspired by things beyond your day job as well as, you know, flipping your day job and becoming the client um, for your, you know, for yourself. Sammy, you seem to be the kind of person with a lot of side jobs, if not jobs, side interests. Uh, tell us about a few of the ones that you're most proud of. Sure. Um, I guess they could all be lumped under like just being positive, I guess, is my side hustle. Um, so one project that I launched um, kind of recently, three weeks ago or so, um, is a newsletter called Bouncy Castle. Um, I kind of joined forces with three of the other most positive people that I know on Twitter. And we kind of get together once a week in like a DM or an email situation and just kind of come up with one thing each that just made us happy that week. And it was just in this last, you know, month, and now it's finally the last week um, until the election. I think everybody, especially on Twitter, is stressed and talking about that stress. And so we, I just kind of wanted to counteract that. Um, so Bouncy Castle is kind of the, the latest thing, and people really latched onto it because it is rough outside, guys. <laughs> it is not pretty. Um, so I think people also wanted kind of an outlet to see something that made other people happy, and then people can submit their own happy things as well to kind of um, keep it going. And I will say so far, most of the emails I've gotten have just been like various pictures of their dogs. Like that's really <laughs> what makes people happy. It's just their dogs. It's very cute. <laughs> so where can I, uh, I mean, I obviously signed up before you even sent out the first one, but <laughs> where can other people sign up for it? 
Totally. So we run it through Tiny Letter, which is a free um, newsletter service that I believe is owned by MailChimp. Um, so you can just go to tinyletter.com slash bouncycastle. And bouncy does not have an E in it. I've seen a few tweets with an E in it. And it's just B-O-U-N-C-Y castle. Great. And what else? Uh, it feels like you have a few other things that you've been up to on the side. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I always like to say I'm like a Gemini, cause, and I am. I am a Gemini, <laughs> and that means I kind of multitask only all the time. Um, so I also run a daily uh, positive newsletter. It's called Pep Talk, so you can find that at tinyletter.com slash pep talk. And I just kind of find uh, a short, quippy quote from uh, some sort of famous person, and I pair it with a somewhat tangential or cute gif that I find online um, and send that around every morning and I know that my one of my grandmothers is its biggest fan and she calls gifts moving pictures and she's not wrong I have never corrected her she's not <laughs> wrong that's all that they are <laughs> so I've been doing that for gosh almost almost 600 days because um, I do send one a day um, uh, it's been really sweet people have also really responded um, to to that as well it's just a cute little short little snack in the morning to get you going so, Tim, uh, I feel like for years and years, your side uh, project has been just more editing. Uh, <laughs> like the only thing you did other than edit for us was edit other places. Uh, what have you taken up any hobbies since moving to Maine? Uh, I like to fish. I learned how to fly fish recently, which is awesome. Um, and I like to do some non-work-related writing as well. Um, but yeah, that's about it. You know, the other thing that's interesting is. I think there's so many creative people in advertising for whom their side project is almost like their main project or, you know, they happen to work at agencies, but they, they have something else that as soon as it breaks, they're going to be jetting off to it. Do you know what I mean? I think that happens a lot. And, and some, I think the smarter agencies are looking at that and saying like, how can we take what you really want to do and incorporate into our offering as an agency um, this kind of came into focus for me when I spoke to David Kolbush this summer. Um, he's, he's sort of creating Droga 5 London from scratch as a creative department. And they've got all these people there that almost every one of them has some sort of like fascinating side job on the side. And, and, and they're really trying to build, you know, rather than say to those people, like, stop doing that and like do this, they're trying to, they're trying to essentially take those skills and those interests and, and learn how they might, uh, you know, how they might be useful for brands and, and how they might be used in campaigns. And, and so, you know, maybe, the, maybe, maybe these creative side jobs could be part of the main job eventually um, for a lot of these folks. Uh, and that, could, that, would make their, that would make their work life a lot more pleasant, I imagine. Yeah, it reminds me of, you know, my first journalism jobs, you had to sign these forms saying, like, anything I write even at home, even for fun, will belong to this news outlet. Like, they didn't want you doing anything, uh, not just on work hours, but anything, period. And that culture, I mean, obviously that's gone away, but I even feel like in the last few years the culture in the agency world has evolved. Uh, because to your point, Tim, they've seen so many times where these passionate side things end up being covered by us. Uh, they, those often are some of our most popular stories uh, because people love hearing that people have a life outside of work, that they're doing these things not to, you know, this isn't some Gary Vaynerchuk story of wanting to like climb out of a one job and one industry and build a personal brand and you're staying up all night, you know, creating a podcast or something. Uh, this is about just doing something because you love it. Uh, and and then that passion really coming to life online, thanks to all these tools that we now have available to us to sell products. Uh, just this weekend, I thought it was kind of funny, a, a Reddit post about this guy's homemade poster for the Apollo 13 mission. It was a really stylish, really beautiful uh, poster, very minimalist, and it blew up to the front page of Reddit, and the guy left a comment just saying, oh yeah, I kind of made that for fun a while back. And here's a link. Or, you know, he just said, he didn't even have a link. He just said, if anyone wants it, let me know. So I sent him a message. I said, yeah, I'd buy it. My family worked on the, my parents worked on the Apollo program. And, uh, and he's, I guess he got a bunch of those and he set up a little shop within 24 hours and he was taking orders to start hand printing this uh, silkscreen again. 
Uh, so, and, you know, I get the hunch that's not at all his day job. It's just something that the internet kind of enabled. Um, and so I just love seeing things like that come up. Uh, but my personal, uh, the thing that, the reason this story is kind of uh, personal to me, the or the series, is because my side job when I was at an agency was writing for Adweek and for our blog, uh, and so Tim recruited me into that uh, about ten years ago, and uh, that was my my real joy in life was kind of getting to write about uh, these fun creativity and and uh, new campaigns, and sure enough, now that is my full time job. Uh, so you just you never know uh, what opportunity is going to come along and and how it's going to change your life. So look forward to these. We're going to be running these a uh, few a week for the next few weeks. And then if uh, if readers really enjoy it, maybe we'll keep it going after that. Uh, but it should be a lot of fun. So just head to Adweek, uh, search for Adweek and Creative Side Jobs, and I'm sure you will find it. And uh, we are about out of time this week. So thank you all for joining us. Really fun conversation. And uh don't forget, uh, if you're listening to this, you can send us an email at any time to podcast at adweek.com, podcast at adweek.com. We love hearing from you. And a few things coming soon. We have closed our annual hot list voting, which is our kind of uh, reader's choice best picks uh, for ma- best magazines, best in TV and best in digital. Uh, that voting is now closed as of the beginning of this week, and we are going to be compiling it all into winners from the Reader's Choice and from our editor's picks, and you can find that in late November. So I'll give you another heads up when that gets closer. And next week's uh, print issue, we're going to have the Adweek 50, which is our annual list of kind of the real power players behind the CEOs. So not necessarily the CEOs, but the ones kind of uh, who don't get as much attention. Always a really fascinating list of who is influential and who is uh, kind of working behind the scenes at some of these major brands and agencies. And so keep an eye out for that. Our theme music is by Home, and this week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, please take a moment, if you have not, to leave us a review on iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast from. Those reviews are very important to us and help the podcast reach new audiences, so we always appreciate it. I'm David Greiner with Adweek.com. Thank you again to each of our panelists, and we will talk to you next week. This week's podcast was brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp makes it easy to connect your e-commerce store to your emails and grow your business. MailChimp will even analyze your customers' purchases so you can make personalized recommendations and drive more sales. MailChimp. Send better email, sell more stuff.